OMG. My oh my, this possibly has been the most insane week in over a decade of working with my friends at Prosper Australia. So uh, yeah, PR has gone absolutely ballistic with our speculative vacancies report. And I've been working around the clock as I plead for your forgiveness, dear podcasters. I've got a new computer, but I still haven't figured it out properly. Uh, I think this ended up recording through my laptop. So today's guest, Catherine Cashmore, sounds all right, but I sound like a tinny shit. So uh, persevere if you can hear the story firsthand from the team that uh, provide the measure that those locked out of housing really need to focus on. Yes, it's our water-based consumption method for the analysis of empty properties. So uh, I might even slide through some of these radio interviews I've been doing this week. It's been fun. I wish it happened every week. I'd love your support. Become a member. Go on. Go to prosper.org.au and press the join button. There's even a tax-deductible element there if you want to really support us. We've got one full-time staff member. That is me. Two part-timers taking on 13 think tanks trying to make property more expensive for you. So come on. Support us. Support 3CR and put up with my technical skills today. Thank you. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And for as long as I've been doing this radio show, we have been monitoring the extent of vacant housing in Melbourne. Started off the first year with uh, myself and a volunteer, Kelly G, a 3CR listener, cycling around the Bluestone Ward of Footscray and counting up the vacant properties there. The year after that, our uh, genius... A volunteer, Tom Curtis, came up with a great concept that we should use water consumption as a proxy for vacant housing. We've been using uh, the study of abnormally low levels of water consumption as a proxy for vacancy uh, since that point in time. And uh, this uh, is the eighth report we've just released. We've had all sorts of media and Catherine Cashmore, our report author for the last well two years, is joining us today. So Catherine, welcome to the show. What were the headline findings uh, from your perspective uh, regarding speculative vacancies 8, the empty properties statistics ignore? Yeah, so there's been a big jump between last year's statistics and this year. And that's not unexpected because we know we've had a boom of demand in the housing market, um, which has been buoyed on obviously by low interest rates and um, a lot of speculative behavior. We've had more investors buying in the market, record numbers of investors buying into the market in Sydney and Melbourne. And so um, we were expecting there to be a jump in the numbers, but not quite as high as we found. It was almost a 30% jump from last year's figures, which were around 64,000. And this year, I think we've come in at 82,724 speculative vacancies that we identified in our report across the greater metropolitan area. And where was the greatest incidence this year? Where have our uh, property speculators been haunting the most? 
Well, unsurprisingly, the highest number of vacancies tend to be around the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Last year, Docklands came top of the list. Um, This year, Docklands has dropped back and Carlton is back at the top of the list. So this is Carlton and Carlton South, not Carlton North, which um, has a separate postcode and therefore is, is assessed separately to Carlton South. But Carlton is a regular feature at the top of the speculative vacancies report list. Um, high proportion of student accommodation in that suburb. So it's not surprising to find that there are vacancies. But when you consider the cost of university fees, student debt, um, high rents, stories of overcrowding that we've had, to have the understanding that there are a lot of empty properties in that, in that suburb is um, distressing. And this is uh, Victoria's leading export industry. What a way to treat our number one clients. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, not only are they uh, uh, number one export industry, but these are the people that are going to grow up and then and then be left um, sitting sitting in rental accommodation because they can't afford housing and they can't afford land. And of course, we're already seeing that trend quite prominently now um, where first time buyers are struggling to afford land, even on the very outskirts of Melbourne. So it's it's a very difficult situation. Policymakers just must be rubbing their hands in glee on how far they can push Gen X and why uh, many of these students are going to finish their studies with fifty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars in student debt, and that would have been uh, a deposit on a home once upon a time. So uh, you know, what do you see with the 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 pressures on young people today? You work as a, a property buyer. Uh, you know, how do you, what's your on the ground gut feeling uh, about the state of affordability? Why are young people so willing just to believe that there's nothing that can be done? Yeah, well, I think young people have grown up into the atmosphere where they've seen their parents have grown wealthy and are retiring really on their, on the um, family home and the inflation that has happened with the family housing. And of course, the government wants to pay, play to that voting base. It's the largest um, proportion of voters are in the sort of baby boomer um, ages and people that are people that are homeowners and so they want to pander to that demographic and at the same time the future voters are um, growing up in you know in this situation where you can't afford a house unless you form a couple and then what you're left doing is is going through all these options of should we should we buy a home or should we buy an investment and uh, carry on living at home for longer and that's exactly the trend that we're seeing across Europe as well, in Britain, and, and to some extent in America, though of course they did have a much bigger correction than, than we had in 2008. Yes, well, I, I, it's just so frustrating for young people. I often say that uh, you know, you're $60,000 between uh, home ownership and a life uh, of, of renting. So uh, let's hope more young people uh, do the reading and, and, and pick up a copy of the Speculative Vacancies Report from the show notes at earthsharing.org.au or visit prosper.org.au and uh, see other press releases and uh, various material we have up there. So Catherine, you also talked about Docklands before. That's a pretty big drop going from 27% to 8.5%. Last year, this was the big news item and we did get some criticism from the local newspaper and the Docklands there about our methodology. It is always a bit controversial the way we uh, measure vacancy. What do you think has changed the vacancy rate so dramatically in Docklands? 
Yeah, well, Docklands isn't the only one that fluctuates. If you look back at the previous reports that we've done, suburbs do tend to fluctuate and they can fluctuate quite sharply. You have to see that from a demographic perspective is that there's a lot of people that are moving to Melbourne weekly and the central areas of Melbourne have seen very um, large portions of population growth. So it's inevitable that through, you know, um, a market that's so big, the housing market, that there's going to be buyers and sellers and, you know, people that do decide to sell. And so some of those vacancies can get taken up. And also we notice that there are sharp booms in speculative vacancies where um, it's followed um, a heightened level of building activity, which comes from an increase in, in prices, of course, because it makes it more profitable for developers to build. So it's not unusual to see those um, rises and falls. What I would say to anyone that's questioning the data is, is when you do look into the research, it's an extremely conservative measure to use. We use less than 50 litres a day. Um, a dripping tap can consume between 30 and 120, I think it is, litres of water per day. And of course, um, there's a lot of properties that do carry out property maintenance, or they might have somebody staying in them intermittently throughout the year, one or two nights through the year. So we can't have it on zero litres per day. But to give some kind of context and perspective, um, it was you know, there was a story in the Mildura Leader recently um, regarding the first homeowner boost that was given um, during the Rudd era um, post GFC when he was trying to buoy the economy on, um, and first home buyers were granted in some circumstances in excess of thirty thousand. And it was on the premise that they live in the property for I think it's a period of twelve months, and. Um, the councils and the authorities have been following up to check that first home buyers do stay in the property. And one of the only ways they can do that is to look through utility usage, including water usage. And they've got a barometer of, of if you're losing, sorry, if you're using less than 118 litres per day, which is far in excess of what we're using as a proxy. Um, so, uh, you know, our measure is a conservative one, and there, it, it is fully explained in the report that it can bias the results one way or the other. You know, it can hide vacancies, or, or you know, we're going to capture more vacancies from that. So, I would encourage people to, you know, before they they um, waft off the research, is to have a look at the methodology chapter and see how we've done it in the report. Gee, talking about young people and what it takes to fire them up, well, how's that then? That uh, here we are, eight years have been lobbying government to try and take on this measure to analyse you know, this hidden housing, housing supply, uh, but instead they use it uh, against young people and first home buyers. So uh, when you do click through that link, I do did have some sympathy for that Mildura property owner because uh, they were uh, working um, off-site quite a bit. So, yeah, we, we, we always say that this methodology is not perfect, but just explain to the listeners some of the conservative elements to the methodology. I mean, 50 litres a day, some people say, look, I live on less than that. Well, how many people do live on less than 50 litres of water a day, Catherine Cashmore? Yeah, so if you look into the data, there's only 3% of households that do manage to live on less than 50 litres of water per day. Um, and bear in mind that we take our data over a complete 12-month period. So we're not just looking, oh, you know, you might have used less than 50 litres for a week or a couple of weeks throughout the year. Um, we're doing it throughout the summer months as well, you know, the summer and the winter months. Um, of the year. So for 12 months, and that's quite a task to be able to live under 50 litres per day. I mean, for single, per person per day, at the moment in Melbourne, um, people are using 183 litres of water per day. So you can see um, it, it is a conservative measure. I, I you know, it, it's, it's, 
we, we could probably put it up and capture more vacancies that, that we're not capturing now. And, I, you know, and, and of course, we also mentioned in the report the zero litre per day usage as well, um, which is also very high. I mean, we've got just about 30,000 um, vacancies that are using absolutely no water um, per year and therefore uh, are without question vacant. And that's an extraordinary number when you consider that um, we're inviting foreign investment into this country on the sole premise that it increases the supply of housing, yet we have nothing to show whether that housing is being effectively utilised. And it's, you know, the, it's been great to see that the developments in the Foreign Investment Review Board, that they are making sure that the rules with foreign investors and offshore investors are being followed. Um, and that's now moved to the tax office that, and they're um, auditing that a lot closer than they were previously. But what we really need to ensure is also that those properties being built are being utilised because the economic um, effects of having property sit vacant um, for long periods of time are um, enormous, really. They cause enormous in inefficiencies in the market. So it is important. It's, it's bizarre in a way that we have international students facing rents of 2,300 plus for a single bedroom in Carlton South. And uh, those prices are being forced up by, uh, some would say, international property investors. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture about just how extensive the role of foreign capital is playing in our housing market. Catherine Cashmore, you're on the ground. What do you see happening with uh, this, uh, this controversial issue of foreign investment? Well, most of it obviously is going into um, new accommodation in Sydney and Melbourne, and it's it's um, in the centre of the town. And also, we've got most of our developers that are building the um, high rise that you see going on around Melbourne and also in Sydney are um, offshore developers that are getting their funding offshore. So it is quite prevalent um, within the city areas, but. Um, from on the ground, the other big push really of prices outside of the foreign market are just new migrants. You, you don't notice them. It's very, I think a lot of people accuse new migrants of being foreigners when they're not. They're permanent residents over here and, and um, they're obviously going into the landlocked Chinese communities in um, Glen Waverley and Mount Waverley and Box Hill. And that has caused sharp inflation in those areas because what, what um, real, estate, real estate agents have noticed is that they do have deeper pockets than um, Australian buyers, people that perhaps have been born here and are a little more accustomed to our house prices and haven't had that offshore experience. Um, so it's certainly a factor. It's a factor and, and it, does need a, it does need to be monitored very carefully. And I really do question whether we need such a lot of foreign investment coming into this country. It's not doing us any good. And those, those obviously, it's not doing us any good based on the results in our report. You know, we, it's really arguable to say whether, you know, the increase in accommodation is, is actually serving the purpose that it's intended to do. Um, and, uh, you know, the recommendations in the report are really designed to um, address this. So, for example, a land tax, unlike a higher GST, money collected from a land tax is spent into the local economy. So if you do have foreign buyers and you're charging them a land tax, you're taxing them for the increase in value in their land, which is obviously caused um, by community development, infrastructure development, community activity, then that's being spent back into the domestic economy. Whereas when you get an increase in GST, um, foreigners don't, don't spend over here, so they don't get charged GST and it, it does nothing, you know. So, I mean, it, it's um, the, the recommendations in the report would, would go to, to addressing a lot of the um, disquiet that we have with foreign investment.
You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're discussing our eighth speculative vacancy report. Yes, 82,724 vacant properties in Melbourne, but still prices are going up, up, up. Catherine Cashmore, the report author, is here to join us, and we are just delving into this big issue that uh, we've been promised this trickle down supply, uh, trickle down supply theory of Ronald Reagan era still exists and has now morphed into the housing world. This has been a Trojan horse for huge land rezonings on the edge of the city. We've had the nation's most uh, dramatically dramatic land rezoning agenda over the last 15, 20 years, and uh, prices have barely fallen. They, they barely have, have they, Catherine? So um, what you just talked about there was this um, friction between housing supply and actual occupancy. Now, can you take us through the mechanism for land tax? Uh, I often have guests on here and I ask them to try and break it down so that the everyday person can understand why on earth are we so passionate about a goddamn tax, let alone mm. the most unpopular one, on, uh, on land? I think most people think of taxes, they think of themselves as paying more money. Whereas um, taxes on land, and land is fixed in supply, actually act to reduce the price of land rather than increase it. Um, and therefore buyers are compensated by that fact. And, and the way I always explain it to people to, to help get their heads around it is that when you go to buy a unit in an apartment block, for example, you are charged a yearly owner's corporation fee. And the higher the owner's corporation fee, as you take that into your budget, the lower amount you're able to pay. So if I told you that you're going to be paying a, you know, um, $3,000 per year owner's corporation fee and what that breakdown would be each month, you would take that into your budget and you would think about the mortgaging costs that you needed to service and you would offer less for that unit. So in that, that's exactly how it works for most people. If they know that they're going to be taxed on the land value, first of all, they'll want to put that land to use to generate some kind of income. And secondly, it does come off the price. It does reduce the upfront amount that they're prepared to to pay on the land it, it has so many numerous benefits to it because that money then gets goes back into the local economy that money can be used to build infrastructure um, that gives the land its value in the first place and um, in, increases commute time so for example it's much more efficient for you to live um, 10 minutes away from your your place of work than it is to live an hour and have to commute in and so paying a higher cost than that you know that enables you to um, perhaps get a better job for example, um, is is a benefit to you and um, a benefit that you're you're willing to contribute, you know, that land tax towards. Just as just as you know, we have a market now. The, the trouble with the market the marketplace as we see it is that um, land sites can be held vacant for very low holding costs, particularly if a property is debt free. So if you've inherited a property, for example, from um, a family member, and it might not carry any debt on it at all. To hold that property vacant is, um, you know, a very low cost um, compared to the capital gains, particularly that you're getting from that home, um, you know, in the Melbourne market, which has been quite considerable. So what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people to put their land to good use, which will encourage densification, which will increase supply, which will lower land prices. Um, which will reduce speculative hoarding of land and, um, you know, uh, give us money for infrastructure that we need, desperately need in some of the outer suburban areas that are, are at the moment suffering because they can't afford to build enough schools for the children that are, that are um, being born there. 
As someone who's on the ground at auction after auction, uh, virtually seven days a week, Catherine, can you uh, give an indication of uh, uh, this statistic that housing investors are now around about 50% of the market and uh, whilst the rules have changed and tightened up on investment lending uh, marginally of recent, um, I'm interested in getting a gist of what percentage of purchases would be cash only, the whole amount paid up front and, and thus those sort of investors not being registered via the housing loans data pipeline that we usually analyse our housing market from? Oh, well, there's a proportion of them. I don't come across them very often. Uh, I have on occasion, and obviously there are a proportion of cash buyers, but most buyers that I deal with and come into contact with are borrowing. The investment numbers have been lifted because um, obviously we've got more first-time buyers now that are finding the only way they can enter the market is to be an investor. To some extent, that's always gone on. But I think the mentality for even home buyers that buy housing is that um, the their consciousness about the investment potential of the property is very high because they realize that whatever they're buying, unless they're going to stay in it for the rest of their life, you know, um, they're going to at some point want to leverage from it or, or they're going to need to use it as part of their retirement. So everyone is acutely aware that whilst they want to buy a home, they also want something that is going to perform well for them as an investment. And so that skews, again, the psychology within the market. Um, uh, and, uh, as, of course, it's national consciousness, really, on, on this feeling that we have to have land price inflation, that it is a good thing. You know, it's only a bad thing for those people that aren't in the market. Anybody that's in the market, it's okay. But you never think about those people that are coming up behind you and your children that are going to be shouldered with higher, higher you know, um, mortgages because of it. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with Catherine Cashmore discussing the speculative vacancies report. It was a uh, lead item on the Australian Financial Review website this morning, page three in the printed version. It's uh, been on the age. It's uh, going to be in the good old uh, Murdoch's paper soon so uh, there's lots of interest in business spectator macro business I think I've had about a hundred odd retweets on uh, my Twitter handle uh, earth sharing so make sure you follow that and uh, Catherine just to tidy things up I mean uh, we like to think this is an innovative um, method for looking at housing affordability but it sounds like uh, quite a few other jurisdictions around the planet are looking at uh, different ways to measure vacancy as well yeah, that, there's been a lot of studies that have been done into vacant housing, um, you know, outside of just using census data, which is the most common. Um, and, um, you know, I know in the USA they do it through post, you know, to, to working out who's in the postal address. They do it through the post there. And this is all explained in the report. Anybody that wants to read that we've got a little bit of a breakdown of how they do it. They've done it in Paris through electricity usage in China. They've done it through surveys, through ringing vendors and um, to see who, who occupies homes and who doesn't. Um, there's been quite extensive reports that have been written about it in Europe. In Spain, for example, it's called the Mediterranean Paradox where there's been a lot of building activity in Spain and house prices have continued to go up, even though that supply has increased. And the vacancy rate has gone up. And the way that they talk about the vacancy rate is to do with not just properties that are advertised for rent, but properties that are owned but are vacant. And so it's called the Mediterranean paradox because vacancy rates are going up and house prices are going up. 
and supply is increasing and it's not doing what it should do. It's not doing what the conventional um, economic um, ex uh, explanation of supply and demand should do. Whereas when you have increased supply, it should bring down prices and, you know, assist demand. That definition, though, of, of rents in, in Melbourne, for example, going down but prices going up, what, how, this is a sign of a market in turmoil. What do you um, put that down to? Yeah, well, I mean, for apartments, rents have been going down and that's because we have such a large supply of apartments that are coming on. So even aside from those that are being kept empty, if anybody does want to rent their apartment and, and get some income, and to be clear, our yields are really low, so they're not going to get much income. And by the time they've gone through all the headaches of um, paying a property manager, which is about 50% of the income that they do earn, and any problems with a tenant that would cause them to have to go to VCAT, for example, um, you know, the, the rents aren't high anyway. And so they're there has been a deflationary pressure on rents in units. But if you look at the houses, I mean, when you think about Melbourne, our biggest buying demographic, our biggest demographic altogether are families with children who want a family home and who want a bit of a garden with it. And those properties are reducing very quickly in supply because the developers are moving into the areas where they're allowed to develop. You know, there's some areas where development is restricted, but there's a lot of areas where it's not. And they're subdividing the land up into apartments. And so the blocks of land are reducing in supply. And also with the government um, restricting growth on the outskirts of Melbourne through putting in urban boundaries, which just encourages land banking, it's uh, quite a dire situation for families. And so rents for housing, for three and four bedroom homes, particularly in the Bayside suburbs and in the southeast areas, um, have seen quite a little bit of um, inflation um, over the last year. And that's significant for, those, for that demographic. Well, Catherine Cashmore, uh, what, what's you know the, the most important takeaway for people to, to grasp from uh, this uh, intense 61-page report that you can find on prosper.org.au, earthsharing.org.au? It needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be taken seriously by policymakers. Um, it's absolutely vital that urban land, which is such a precious and finite resource, is utilised effectively for the benefit of the community and not just set aside for speculators. The economic costs are enormous. Within the report, I cited a study that was done in San Francisco where I think there are around 250 to 300,000 per for one rental unit that was taken off the rental market. That's the cost to the local economy. Um, so it's vital that land is utilised. And as is the only report that does look at... Um, the, whether housing is being utilised and does use this, this form of methodology. It has um, provoked quite a lot of interest from Treasury, certainly from New South Wales Treasury. They've been quite interested in trying to mirror the report for Sydney, so we're hoping that we might be able to work with them and assist um, with a Sydney report to uh, see what the situation is there. So it does need to be taken seriously, um, and the policy recommendations that are in the report are recommendations that would resolve, go a long way toward resolving the issues that we have now. And those recommendations, they're not unique to our report. They're recommendations that have been suggested in every Senate inquiry that into housing affordability that has taken place, certainly since the early 2000s. But if you can go back further than that, the, the housing affordability inquiry started in Australia in the 1970s. 
And even in those reports, you can find um, a lot of conversation about tax policy and uh, land hoarding and you know land utilisation. So our report is our recommendations aren't unique, but our report is unique, and it does need to be taken seriously by policymakers. Well, Catherine Cashmore, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. You're welcome. Thank you.